0: Support for this podcast is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a creative audio agency in Washington, D.C. Goat Rodeo helps clients and partners create high-quality professional audio content, translating ideas to sound. Find them at GoatRodeoDC.com.
1: Really, a lot of the struggles we have with our kids are that we are trying to control them. And the big insight I came to is that we actually shouldn't be trying to control them. We should be developing their
2: own sense of self-control. From A-Decibel Media, I'm Megan Rumler, and you're listening to A-Decibel Voices, a podcast that features intimate conversations with Asian-American trailblazers who all have one thing in common, unabashedly pursuing their dreams while transforming the fabric of this nation. From food to business to tech to the arts, this is Asian America, up close and personal. It's now September, and for many of us, that means back to school. 56.6 million students will attend elementary and secondary schools, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. As children around the country fill school hallways, Parents everywhere are shifting their mindset from the lazy days of summer back to the busyness of the school year. Our guest today is Katherine Reynolds-Lewis, an award-winning Washington, D.C. area journalist, certified parent educator, and author of The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever, and What to Do About It. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Fortune, Mother Jones, The New York Times, Slate, and The Washington Post. And she's here with us today to talk about the challenges of parenting year-round, but especially now as we head fresh into a new school year. Katherine Reynolds-Lewis, welcome to A-Decibel Voices. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So before we dive into the book, I'd love to explore your backstory. You grew up in Schenectady, New York. Your mother is Chinese a first-generation immigrant from Singapore, and your father is Caucasian with European history. How did they meet? They met in graduate school
1: at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And the legend that they tell is that my dad walked up to my mom and said, 你是南方人还是... Uh, Beifang Ren. I love that. (laughs) That was the pickup line (laughs) that worked. How does that translate? Are you from the south or from the north? (laughs) And what
2: was her response?
1: Um, I think she was probably surprised that he could speak Chinese and uh, had to explain she was from Singapore. So neither the south or the north, um, although originally from Canton province generations ago. And then, you know, being one of the few women in that economics PhD program and certainly one of the very few Asian students, um, you know, she became friends with him. And and then they eventually started dating and got married. And I was born in Ann Arbor in the middle of a snowstorm. And so my Chinese name is Xue Yi, which roughly translates to snow harmony. Or, I
2: love yeah. that. That's uh, <laughs> beautiful. What a rich Story. Not everyone has stories like that. I love
1: that. <laughs> well, we were definitely a family of storytellers, and I don't think it's an accident I ended up being a writer because my dad, especially, but both my parents really filled my childhood with family stories and myths and, and, and legends and um, all, all kinds of fiction stories
2: as well. I'm so glad you touched on your childhood because that was my next question. What was your childhood like aside from growing up with? these rich stories. You've got two very different parents from different backgrounds. What was it like in your childhood? That's a great question. There's so much to say. I felt very loved
1: and supported by my parents. I knew that I had their unconditional love and that they also expected a lot from me. They were sort of academic hippies and they were not very much involved in the counterculture of the 70s, they, I think, really saw childhood as this opportunity to enrich us. And they also just really enjoyed us. I think they're both sort of introverts. So we had a lot of just close family time. And then my mom, eventually, she didn't get a PhD, which I think she attributes to some combination of racism and sexism, mostly sexism, because when they went up for the advancement to the PhD, she had the best grades and she was really brilliant. And they said, why would we waste a PhD when you're just going to have kids, right? Something to that effect. So she had to sort of retool after having um, me and my brother and ended up going back to work. And at that stage. We, my brother and I had a lot more independence. So we, um, you know, in the older elementary middle school years would come home from school on our own, make ourselves a little snack. We um, really did a lot of roaming around the neighborhood, playing with friends. You know, it was the late 80s. So it was just, I think, a different time in terms of what people felt about kids' freedom of movement. And I think we, we went to the local public schools, which were majority white. So we definitely always felt like the minority. When I was eight, we went to live in China for a year on my dad's sabbatical. And I remember saying, when I'm with my Chinese friends, my hair looks brown. And when I'm with my white friends, or my American friends, I used to say, my hair looks black. And that sort of crystallized for me the experience of growing up, that I never really fit wherever I was. And yet, I could sort of move between worlds.
2: You know, you're touching on a lot of underlying threads in your childhood. One of the threads that I've picked up on is the sense of independence. I read in researching your background that you attended um, high school in New Hampshire at Phillips Exeter, one of the oldest secondary schools in the U.S., also a school with an interesting pedagogy based on the Harkness education model. Can you explain to our listeners what is this? What is the Harkness Method?, And did it play any part of who you are today? So the
1: Harkness model is the students and the teacher are sitting around an oval table, all equal. And so each one has a voice in the discussion. And the teacher is really seen as a guide and a sort of coach or mentor, as opposed to imparting wisdom from the front of the room to, you know, students who are just soaking it up. And that sense of engagement with the material... Was very empowering for me as a student. And um, I just learned so much because I felt that I had something to contribute. And it's great that you brought it up because I think it really is a through line for me that I maybe haven't realized until this moment that, <laughs> you know, those seeds were planted really,
2: really young. Some of these threads of independence and self reliance in researching your journey. Has continued to resurface, and so from Exeter you went on to Harvard, ultimately graduating with a degree in physics. But then shifted to a career in journalism, and you really started out as a business journalist, covering Wall Street, the Supreme Court, and writing about, of all things, derivatives, <laughs> uh, which you know sounds pretty scary to me. I don't. <laughs> How did you go then from being? you know, a Harvard graduate in physics to being a business journalist to now really a parent educator.
1: So throughout my life, I have always challenged the notion that I couldn't do something. And so many of my life choices were based on someone telling me I couldn't My college counselor told me, don't even bother applying to Harvard because you won't get in. You don't have the grades. You have a much better shot at applying to Yale where your dad went. And I was determined to prove him wrong. (laughs) So (laughs) then I got to Harvard and I had always loved physics. I love math. Physics was very intuitive for me. And I did love learning physics. I realized I really loved the process of learning about science more than doing science. And I figured I'd try journalism. I had been on my high school newspaper, and I loved it. And I thought it would have
2: the lowest barrier to entry. So what was the conversation like then with your parents? I mean, were they, did they have any opinions on the switch? Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) They had many opinions. My dad was sort of really stressed about, you know, I hadn't gotten into grad school and he didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had applied actually to the London School of Economics and was accepted for a master's degree in economics. And he was on the phone with me talking about all these options and just sort of pushing me to decide. And I said, Dad, back off. I've got this. He backed off and my parents really just trusted me. They funded my move to New York City. They paid for, you know, my rent for the first six months. And then I think we're kind of shocked after six months when I said, "Okay, I've got this. I now am supporting myself. As I continued in journalism, they saw that I really loved it and I was thriving and advancing. And after about a decade, I would
2: say, they stopped asking when I was going to go back to school. We'll be
0: right back after this word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, 8 Media Group, a Washington, D.C. area video production company whose mission is to create, collaborate, and resonate. Find them at 8mediagroup.com. If you're just joining us,
2: we've been talking with Catherine Reynolds Lewis, an award-winning Washington, D.C. area journalist, certified parent educator, and author of The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever, and What to Do About It. Catherine has been featured on NPR, CNN, and Bloomberg Television and Radio, as well as other radio programs nationally and internationally. Catherine, what does it mean to be a certified parent educator, and what was the moment that made you decide to pursue the certification?
1: Truly, it came out of my own despair <laughs> that my kids weren't doing what I wanted. I was lucky enough to find the Parent Encouragement Program in Kensington, Maryland, when my three-year-old was not going with the program. And I just, you know, had no other um, ideas about how to get her to do what I wanted. So I started taking parenting classes. At some point, I realized I was only a couple of professional development steps away from being a certified parent educator. So I, yeah, became certified. For me, really, been mostly motivated by how valuable I find the material and how much I want to keep it in my brain. When I wrote this book, you know, it Mm -hmm. was a a way of keeping me honest that I couldn't write a chapter about how you should be patient with your kids and listen to their ideas and then have my kids roll in the door at 3.30 and start bossing them around. (laughs) I mean, I certainly had moments of dissonance where I I realized that I was still after – 10 years of being immersed in this material still had that impulse to assert my authority and try to make them do what I wanted.
2: Let's talk about your book. How did your book come to be? What's the genesis uh,
1: behind it? The genesis came from an article I wrote for Mother Jones magazine about school discipline. And to date, I believe it's still the most read story Mother Jones has ever published, more than six million views. I think that that's just proof, not that I'm such a fabulous writer, but I struck a chord that I wasn't the only person struggling over why are kids so out of control.
2: That kind of backdrop really helps. You know, your book, what I really love about it is it explains, like you had mentioned, you just referenced that kids are really undisciplined in so many different nuanced ways. And there's this concept of crisis of self-regulation. What is causing this? And what are some of the tips that we can share with parents as we are fresh back into school? Such a good question. Through the process of reporting this book,
1: I spent five years really looking at all the research on child development, the latest neuroscience. I went into classrooms and followed teachers, and. I stalked families, <laughs> I should say. And I became convinced that we have a crisis of self-regulation. And the statistic that really persuaded me was a um, study from the National Institutes of Health that looked at more than 10,000 children, a representative sample, and found one in two will have a mood or behavioral disorder or substance addiction by age 18. So That's, that's crazy. Yeah. So that's every other kid is going to have anxiety, depression, ADD. Um, you know, suicidality, self-harm, and anyone who has little people in their lives knows that every other one of them, I mean, it seems like a lot because it is. Because, you know, they're really struggling to manage their thoughts, behavior, and emotions in a way that we didn't growing up. There's a number of reasons, but I think it's pretty clear that the lack of childhood play is a big factor. That's how kids have always learned social and emotional skills and confidence and resilience. And then the growth of social media and technology is another big one that just turns our focus outward. extrinsic focus has always been associated with mental illness, anxiety, depression, narcissism, whereas intrinsic focus is deeply associated with well-being and mental health. And the third factor is just that childhood has really become about achievement and performance instead of kids having a way to contribute to the household or community by having an after-school job or looking after younger siblings or having a sort of immediate way to show that they are contributing. They need to get straight A's and be the soccer star and be the gifted musician and then do it again tomorrow. And they're wonderful goals for our kids, but they can't be the only source of our children's identity. So going into the school year, I think the, the most valuable thing that we can do for our kids is to help them plan for success and also help them plan for, you know, setbacks because that is what childhood is, is learning from our mistakes. Every child needs support in executive function. That's the set of skills that help us to plan, stay organized, to execute projects, and they need to mess up and learn from their own mistakes. So we can t- talk to our kids about what's going to help you be successful. How will you stay organized? What are your goals? I think helping our kids think about what they want from the school year is really important. Having Mm -hmm. parameters in our family agreements around homework, around screen time, around all the things that interfere with our kids' success um, is just a great way to start because all of us go into that school year with energy and positivity. And let me tell you, by November, <laughs> a lot of us are dragging. So if we can lay the groundwork now with family agreements and um, around screen time, we always have our kids agree to do their homework, jobs, chores, um, and exercise or music lessons or whatever are their personal goals before they do screens in the afternoon on a school day. And that's such a great um, thing to lay down early before it becomes a problem. We also have a bedtime for screens so that the kids aren't up all hours and sleep is such an important foundation for mental health. And then um, homework is another big one where I I really try to set limits on my involvement in homework. Um, Good rule of thumb is 10 minutes per grade of school. So if you're a third grader, you know, you have in your schedule 30 minutes for homework and they're routinely taking longer, that is not a chance for them to sit at that table for another 30 minutes. It's a chance for a conversation with the teacher or, you know, helping them figure out what's, you know, what's getting in their way. And maybe they're just stuck on a problem and they need to write, you know, on the paper, I need to reteach or I'm stuck on this and move on so that they're not just banging their head against the wall for hours and hours. One of the
2: things that I also admired about the book and its content is there are some deeper sub-threads going on around control and power and how both can be leveraged to help or hinder behavior in children. Can you talk a little bit about these themes? Yes. Yeah, so
1: I came to the conclusion after all this research and writing the book that really a lot of the struggles we have with our kids are that we are trying to control them And the big insight I came to is that we actually shouldn't be trying to control them. We should be developing their own sense of self-control. From zero to 18, we want to constantly be giving more and more power to them. So by the time they're 18 and they're headed out the door and they're on their own, they've had lots of practice at being in control. We can't just expect to be 100% in charge until the day they graduate from high school and then send them off because they will have had no practice.
2: Looking to the future, based on your knowledge and your expertise of parenting issues, what does the future hold for our children if, as a collective society, we don't course-correct? I mean, what's at stake here?
1: It's really nothing less than the future of our species, because Kids learn from their parents how to respond to threat, how to uh, feel about a new experience. And anxiety is a number one challenge in that NIH study that I mentioned. Nearly a third of kids have anxiety. And when anxious parents have kids, they're responding to the world in a fearful way. So they're teaching their kids that the world is dangerous. And I'm not saying this to demonize anyone who's managing anxiety or depression or ADD but that we as adults have a responsibility to figure out how we're going to manage our unique brain chemistry. Our goal with our kids is to help them figure out, okay, what are your own challenges and what are your unique strengths? And what are the things that are going to help you manage those challenges so that you can achieve your goals, so that you can you know, do meaningful work that you can achieve in school and beyond, that you can form relationships with other people that are satisfying and and contribute. And that really has to be our goal as as adults is to not say, oh my gosh, you're broken because you have ADD or anxiety or, oh no, you're having a panic attack. But oh yeah, a lot of people have panic attacks. Here are 20 ideas for things that help you manage them. What works for you? Let's try them out. Let's make a list that you can keep in your back pocket so that when you feel that way, you can pull it out and try one of those things that you identified. And and not treat it as, "Oh no, they're broken, they're flawed, there's a problem," but, "Okay, great. We figured out what your challenge is going to be, you know, this year or or for your life." And and that's a great insight to have into yourself. But um The sooner we get a a handle on it and start naming it and acknowledging it and helping our kids
2: find those solutions, the better. Well, you know, I I think I actually could use some of those panic attack (laughs) tips. Yes. (laughs) Um, So my last question is, were there any surprises or lessons as a result of writing this book? Oh, definitely.
1: The research around um, parental criticism, it was very powerful for me. And in the scope of um, things, um, you know, people who have Asian moms, you know, I think I <laughs> lucked out. She's not the most critical, but she certainly, you know, was tough growing up. Yeah. And I knew what she thought without even her having to say anything because of like her mouth. The look. Right, the look and <laughs> And so I went into parenting with that model of my job is to see your flaws and fix them, right? (laughs) To to show you where you've messed up so that you don't do it again. And the research around parental criticism is pretty powerful that it can exacerbate mental illness. It can, you know, exacerbate eating disorders. And you may not have a child who's sensitive in that way, but some of us do. So we need to be very careful about that critical comment or critical eye especially with our vulnerable kids. And um, that research really powerfully changed um, how I approach my kids. I try to always have my first interaction be, you know, oh, so great to see you. What are you doing? And then I'll be like, and you need to wipe your mouth. (laughs) Um, And the other really powerful research for me was the longitudinal study from New Zealand that looked at negative experiences in childhood and phobias as an adult. And you'd think if someone had a fall from heights, they would have a phobia of heights as an adult. And instead, there was the opposite correlation, that children who had a fall from heights were less likely to have a fear of heights. And similar um, interactions with fear of water and separation. Our kids need those tough experiences in childhood. We, we think our job is to keep them completely safe and free from all harm. And yes, we want them to not die, you know, have any sort of really permanent damage. But we want them to have those small bumps and bruises that they can learn from. And the most important thing they can learn is I'm resilient and I can thrive despite whatever life is going to throw at me. That was a very big shift for me. And I think it's something that's so true for all parents that we need to have faith in our kids' ability to weather those bumps and bruises. And coming back to that theme of control, when we are in control and we have to be in control, we're sending a message to our kids, yeah, you can't really hack it on Mm -hmm. your own. You know, I'm going to have to be in charge of these decisions because you would just make such a mess of it. And that's not the message we want to send our kids.
2: Katherine Reynolds-Lewis, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for joining us in the studio today. My pleasure. What a wonderful conversation, Megan. Katherine Reynolds-Lewis is an award-winning Washington, D.C. area journalist and author of The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever, and What to Do About It. You can find a direct link to her book in our show notes at adecibel.com. You can also meet and hear Catherine speak in person at some upcoming events. If you happen to be on the West Coast, she'll be in Davis, California on October 16th at a book talk and signing. The following week, she'll be back on the East Coast on October 23rd in Baltimore, Maryland. Details can be found on our website at catherinerlewis.com forward slash events. And we'll also have a link in our show notes. A Decibel Voices is hosted by me, Megan Rumler, and co-produced and edited by myself and Stacy Yu. Next week, we get to talk food, specifically Filipino food. Our guest is Javier Fernandez, chef and owner of Jazz Leshawn Belly, and nominated 2019 Washington DC's Rising Culinary Star of the Year. Be sure to tune in.
0: Hey, it's Stacy here. Since we're a brand new podcast, we need your help. Send us your feedback. We want this podcast to be listener-centered and would love to hear from you. What do you like, not like, or wish you could hear more of? Is there an Asian American trailblazer whom you want us to interview? Tell us what you think. Call or text us at 202-599-3318. Leave your full name, contact info, age, and where you're from. Messages are recorded. So who knows? Maybe you'll hear yourself on our show. Thanks for listening and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.